right. Habakkuk chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 16 this morning. Let me read this to us. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. The word of the Lord. So uh, wrapping up the book of Habakkuk today, and in many ways, this has been a different book from pretty much all of the other minor prophets that we've been looking at over the bulk of this year. Uh, In week one, we explored the similarities between Habakkuk and the book of Job. Uh, The fact that these books are are very closely aligned uh, uh, together. And, And also, as we will see today, the fact that the book of Habakkuk aligns with the Psalms as well. In fact, two scholars, Alan Furr and Gary Yates, point out that Habakkuk brings the language of the psalmist and the prophet together more than any other book in the Minor Prophets. It's really unique in that regard, and it's a fascinating book for that reason. And in fact, in today's text, what we see is truly a psalm, like in the strictest sense of the word psalm. A psalm is, at its core, John might have thought he misspoke a few minutes ago, but a psalm at its core truly is a sung poem or prayer, right? It's, it's, it's something where we're, we're, we're expressing ourselves to God, not just through the written word, but through this sort of poetical, literal, or lyrical form, like we're, we're vocalizing our expressions of praise to him. The book of Psalms is a collection of these poems Uh, written mostly by King David at various points in his life. But we approach the Psalms in a somewhat odd way today because here in the West, we simply read them, right? We, We don't sing them. Yet for Israel, they would have sung these poems and, and the Psalms in many ways, it was their prayer book. It was their hymn book. And in Hebrew, the word psalms is telehim, or praises. Yet another way that we're culturally different here in the West is not only that we're not singing the psalms, but we don't really sing our prayers at all, do we? That's just not a part of our life. That's not a common practice for us. And yet Paul told the church in Ephesus be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the part of that passage, Ephesians 5, that I really want to seize on this morning is that last line, giving thanks always 
and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That seems to be like what is actually happening in the Psalms, even though the Psalms contain a like full spectrum of human emotion. In comparison, it can seem like modern Christian music contains only the most spiritual 2% of life. God is great. Uh, God is good. God is loving. Uh, Everything's awesome. Even when things aren't great, I know God's there. Uh, Even when things are tough, God makes me a conqueror and I overcome everything. Like, Like that's kind of the content of modern Christian music. But the Psalms also contain those sentiments. And yet there's a whole genre, as we've learned, of Psalms that are called Psalms of Lament in which a complaint is brought to God, or God is questioned, or doubt is expressed. We saw this very thing in Habakkuk. We saw it in Job. There's also a category of psalms that are called imprecatory psalms, in which enemies are imprecated, or in other words, that curses are declared on them. When's the last time you heard that on Christian radio? God, I hate my enemies. I want you to kill them all. Let me share uh, an imprecatory psalm with you. It's one of the more famous ones. Um, This is Psalm 139. Let me read this to you. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, oh, Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. This is beautiful, isn't it? Like this is poetry. This is like praising God. I praise you for I'm fearfully, wonderfully made. This is really incredible stuff. And then watch this. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, and O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is a significant form throughout the Psalms, these imprecatory Psalms. And honestly, it's like we don't know what to do with that in today's world, right? We don't know what to do with that. Like it almost sounds wrong to us. 
feels wrong for us to express some of those thoughts openly, even though we've all had those kinds of thoughts. Like we've had dark thoughts, particularly concerning people who have hurt us or people that we're afraid of. And the thing I want you to see, though, is, is not just that the Psalms contain that type of language, not just that the Psalms contain questions and doubt and, and lament and, or, or the full spectrum of human emotion. What I want you to see is that it contains those things alongside the praise and worship of God. Those things are not like mutually exclusive things. Notice that the psalmist is on one hand praising God and thanking God and, and like obviously noticing the incredible work that God has done in even just creating him and creating us human beings. And yet at the same time, either questioning or asking God to do away with his enemies or whatever the case may be, the Psalms contain all of this. When Paul told the church in Ephesus to always give thanks to God, the Father, for everything, he was giving that instruction to a marginalized, largely powerless, and persecuted church in a place that was not only pagan culturally, but whose sexual immorality makes us look like we're all living at Disney World today. Like, honestly, like in Ephesus at that point in time, it was just bonkers, Bonkers, like just debauchery beyond what we could possibly imagine. Debauchery that was sort of um, ritualized into religious forms. The pagan religion in Ephesus that centered around the temple of the worship of the goddess Diana or Artemis, as she's sometimes called, was, I mean, it was basically a sex cult. Like the pre, there were no priests really, it was mainly priestesses in the temple, and they were sort of like temple prostitutes. And so this is the culture that that church in Ephesus was living in, just completely off the rails. And he's telling them, even though you're persecuted, even though you're living in the midst of this craziness, give thanks to God for everything. In spite of the circumstances of your lives, give thanks to God. What the Psalms show us is that praise and doubt or worship and fear, or celebration and anger can somehow exist together in the same space. That God is not unaware of emotional complexity and that he welcomes honesty from us. Yet the call or the challenge for us is somehow to not allow our questions or our doubts or our fears or our anger to push out or away the worship of God, right? That those things don't become all-consuming and, and that we, as a result, become completely inwardly focused, but that instead that those things could somehow exist together. It's when we're in those places of doubt or fear or anger or grief or questions or whatever where we perhaps most need to press into the worship of God, not as like an illogical act of cognitive dissonance, but rather as like a humble realization that he is God and we are not, and that he actually has power over the circumstances of our lives that we simply don't have, no matter how powerful we think we are. In other words, worshiping God in all cases is the recognition that he is in control and that's true no matter what's going on in our lives. 
And that's what we see in Habakkuk as well. In chapter 1 of Habakkuk, uh, the prophet lamented to the Lord, God, when are you going to do something about what's going on in my home, about the the sort of spiritual state of Judah? Like, when are you going to make Judah great again, in a sense? And, And rather than telling him the whole plan, God responds by telling Habakkuk that he's actually raising up Babylonians. He's raising up the Chaldeans to invade and take over the land. We get into chapter 2, and Habakkuk responds to God going, what? Right? Like, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I want. And, and, yet, and yet, in spite of that, he, he then turns more questions to God. God, how can you allow an even more wicked nation to come into Judah and succeed and triumph over your people? But God told Habakkuk that the soul of Babylon, like the being of the Babylonians, is puffed up and it's not upright. And and he famously said, as we looked at last week, that the righteous shall live by faith. Or we could possibly restate that to being something like the, the righteous by faith shall live. That it's not just about how you live in your day to day life but that faith is ultimately what leads to life eternally, right? It's not just about a day-to-day type thing. In other words, I think that God was saying that ultimately the wicked shall perish, but those who have faith in the Lord will live, but that all happens in God's timing. That all happens on his schedule. Hence God telling Habakkuk, wait for it. Wait, it will not delay. So following that, at the end of chapter 2, is, is like a taunt against Babylon. It's like, like he's mocking them, and he issues these woes to Babylon, like, look out, Babylon, because here's what's coming for you. And, and Habakkuk declares that they'll ultimately be destroyed. And it's not, it's not clear if that's like a prophecy from the Lord or if it's Habakkuk's recognition that the wicked will ultimately perish, right? That God isn't going to allow the wicked to persevere forever. So their time will eventually come. So then today we get into chapter 3, and it's a literal psalm of praise to God, complete with musical notations, as we saw, to to the choir master with stringed instruments. But it's praise to God that is also filled with fear. Filled with fear. Because Habakkuk knows that even though Babylon will ultimately be destroyed at some point in time, there is going to be a period of suffering and hardship that's going to happen before that. Look with me at verse 16. Habakkuk says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. So Habakkuk's not excited about what the Lord has declared. He's not like looking forward to this by any stretch of the imagination. In many ways, he comes full circle just like Job. If you remember in the beginning, like Job received bad news. This, this book begins with Habakkuk receiving bad news. And to some extent, both of them sort of arrogantly thought, even though they don't accuse God of wrongdoing or anything like that, they both kind of think, 
maybe I know better what should be happening here. Like maybe I have a better idea than God does about how things should actually go. And with Job, what we saw is that God ultimately brings him around to saying, God, I I spoke in ignorance and I'm sorry. I didn't know what I was talking about. And ultimately, we get to the end here with Habakkuk, and it it sort of comes to the same place. I've made my complaint to God. I've put my questions before the Lord. But at the end of the day, I'm coming to this place of going, God's will be done, right? God is the one who is sovereign. God is the one who is in control. God is the one who's all powerful. And even though my lips quivering and my legs are trembling and what I hear makes me fearful, right? Like I'm going to pray this prayer of thanks and I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait on the Lord to do what he's going to do. In the end, he accepts God's word and he praises God in spite of the circumstances, in spite of what's going to happen. Look at verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. He's talking about like famine, right? He's talking about just complete and utter devastation in the land. We don't have food. We don't have sustenance. We don't have nourishment. Even if all of those things happen, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Even if things are as bad as they could possibly be, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. This is very similar to Job saying, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Like it sounds illogical to us that in the midst of suffering, right, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of grief, in the midst of loss, that somehow we would say, I'm going to take joy in the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord, says Job. Job recognizes God's authority and his autonomy, even in the midst of loss and grief, and he worships him. Worship in spite of the situation. In many ways, this is no different from Jesus, like praying in the garden on the night of his arrest. He knew what was to come. His soul was deeply troubled within him, and yet he prays, what? God, not my will but your will be done. There's this hymn we used to sing when I was a kid at church called Have Thine Own Way, Lord. Does anybody remember this? The first stanza of that hymn, I think, reflects what I'm talking about. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will while I am waiting, yielded and still. Not my will, but yours be done, God. So two takeaways for us today. First of all, seasons of uncertainty, seasons of doubt, fear, suffering, are actually opportunities for us to push deeper into worship 
rather than to run away from it. And, and when I say worship, I don't mean like singing some songs on a Sunday morning. I don't even mean like singing the Psalms. Like when, I'm, when I talk about worship, what I'm talking about is what I was saying earlier, it, it, uh, turning our affection to God, like glorifying his name, choosing to kind of place the spotlight on him rather than ourselves in this sort of I must decrease, he must increase type way, truly giving him the position and authority and power in my life that he has and deserves, right? That's worship. I'm not God. The material things in my life are not God. My career is not God. My children are not God. My spouse is not God. God alone is God. And so I'm going to not only claim that and declare that, I'm going to live as if that is true, right? That, that God is God, and as a result, I'm going to push deeper into worship. But at the same time, it's not about like putting on rose-colored glasses. You don't have to pretend that things don't suck. That's not what God's asking of you. You don't have to put on a facade for him because he sees right through it. He knows your heart. Instead, he wants you to bring him your honest heart, but to also recognize his authority and give thanks to the Lord for everything, as Paul said, right? So secondly, and this is what we see here at the very end of Habakkuk. This is how he ends his book. There can be joy in the midst of hardship. There can be joy in the midst of hard seasons. For Habakkuk, though, the joy is not coming from his circumstances. It's not like, uh, like a thank you, sir, may I have another type joy. It's not, God, you've said this terrible thing is going to happen. Thank you, God. I'm so excited about that. I'm going to put a smile on my face. That's not what he's doing here, right? He is making a conscious decision to take joy in the Lord. Um, in the book of Nehemiah, in chapter 8 of Nehemiah, the exiles from Judah who were carried away by the Babylonians, they're coming back to their land after everything's been leveled, right? After all this stuff that Habakkuk just talked about, the herds being gone, like the fields being all that, like these people are coming back and they're grief-stricken. Like you would think they would be rejoicing and exultant because God's allowing them to come back to Judah. And yet when they come back and see the state of things, they're just like, oh my gosh, like what, what in the world did we do? Like there are tears from the people who had seen it before, like the old, old folks who were returning and who are going, man, this is nothing like the place we left. And yet Nehemiah tells the people of Judah, the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And, and that's not like a milk toast spiritual platitude that he's given them. He means it literally. He means it literally. Your strength is in your willingness to, as we said last week, live as if God's words are truthful. Not just as if God is real, but as if he's real and his words are true. Because what has he told Habakkuk? Yes, the Babylonian's going to rise up and overtake you, but here's the deal. The wicked are not going to prosper forever. The righteous are the ones who are going to live by faith. So eventually, and this is what he's talking about with all this language about waiting, 
eventually they're going to be destroyed. And who's going to be left, right? It's going to be those who have had faith in God. If you're living as if God's words are true, then you're living as if there is a promised future where those who have faith in the Lord will live forever. That's exactly what Habakkuk's doing here, guys. And that's like a superpower in a world where everyone else is fully emotionally controlled by the circumstances of their lives alone. And that's because we've been conditioned to pursue circumstantial happiness rather than deep, abiding, biblical joy. And in fact, we tend to use those two words simultaneously, synonymously, as if they are the same thing. And the reality is that biblically, those words are deeply intertwined. Happiness and joy, they're deeply intertwined. If you're a joyful person, you will probably also be a happy person. But on the flip side, it could be the case that you're occasionally happy, that you're circumstantially happy, but not consistently joyful. Because the question is, what is the source of your happiness? Like, where is that actually coming from? What are you looking to in your life to be the things that give that to you? So Justin was talking a minute ago about being in nature, right? And, and so it, it can be easy to like go out and like get some like vitamin D, right? And like feel good about, see a beautiful place and feel good about life. It, it's another thing though to like connect with God in his creation, like to abide with him, to unite with him, to, to, to experience his presence, in the world that he has made, and to come away with like deep and abiding joy. And it's not just because you've seen something pretty, right? It's because you've experienced the goodness of God in the things that he's made. I think we can do this in all kinds of ways through, uh, through anything that's beautiful, like music, art. I think we can experience the Lord and have, have like a real encounter with him and come away with a more deep and abiding sense of joy. In today's world, uh, you, uh, you will often hear that, that joy and happiness are just two completely different things. Um, and I think in today's world, that is kind of true. And that's not necessarily like a Christian idea. It's not something we have a monopoly on. Secular psychology will tell you the same thing. Happiness in today's world is largely circumstantial. Like, I got a new job, I'm happy. Or uh, we had a baby, and I'm happy. Or I held a puppy, right? I'm happy. But joy, on the other hand, has more to do with a like consistent state of interior peace that produces happiness, which is something I choose more than it is something that just happens to me. And even though joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, according to Paul, we still choose to either walk in the fruit of the Spirit or not walk in the fruit of the Spirit. It's not something that God forcefully or magically imposes on us. But that said, it's only through the Spirit that we even have access to this type of joy that I'm talking about. This, this joy and this peace and this love and this perseverance, like all of these things, 
that are like outside of ourselves. They're not just things that we can do through force of willpower. They're things that somehow come to us from outside us. It's not just something we muster up within us. And when we try to do that, it isn't consistent and it isn't lasting. Our knowledge of the hope of the gospel, that this world is not all that there is, that all things will be made new, should bring about joy in our lives. The knowledge that God's words are true when we live as if they are true should produce joy that leads to happiness, even in the midst of pain and suffering. For Habakkuk, the knowledge that Babylon would eventually be destroyed and that the righteous would live by faith, I think, was a source of joy for him. When he says, I'm going to take joy in the Lord, that's not this ethereal thing. The Lord has spoken to him and he's saying, I'm choosing to believe his words and I'm going to take joy in the faithfulness and consistency of his words. They're not going to change. They are what they are. And the good news of Jesus can and should be that for us as well. It is a promise that our current season, our current circumstances are not forever. And that the scheme, in the scheme of eternity, what we're experiencing currently is so small that it couldn't even be called like a blip on the radar. Because when you consider the span of eternity and what it will be like to experience pure joy, perfect joy, as a part of his family, in his presence forever, it contextualizes what we're going through right now. And it doesn't mean that you don't feel the hard things or that they're not somehow real. It just means that our state of being doesn't have to be controlled by them. Right, That the circumstances of our lives don't have to control how we are and how we live. God truly can give us strength to endure, but we must also consciously seek, as Habakkuk does, to turn our hearts and our minds from our current situation only to that eternal reality of Christ. That what Christ has done for us is not just a a thing that like peps us up or, or gives us some sort of like weird, you know, blind faith, but that in that and the truthfulness of those words, we can find a consistent state of interior peace by resting in them and allowing them to truly guide our hearts and our minds. Let me leave you this morning with these words of Christ. This is what he spoke to his disciples as he was preparing them for what was to come for them after his ascension, which was primarily persecution, hardship, and death. Jesus said, if they hated me, you better believe they're going to hate you. And they willingly stepped into that. Here's what Jesus said to them in John 16. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Some translations read, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? Joy, peace, 
not getting bogged down in the circumstances of what for us <laughs> is something we've never experienced before, the kind of persecution and tribulation that those guys went through. Jesus said to them, I have overcome this. I've overcome it. I've conquered it. It's mine. And the big takeaway from the book of, of, of Habakkuk for me is, is, is this. When Jesus says something, when God says something, I don't have to question whether or not that's actually going to be true or whether or not that's actually going to come to fruition. When God says it, it is so because of who he is. Jesus doesn't say something here like, don't worry, when you get to be with me later down the road, there's going to be mansions and gold streets, right? It's going to rain dollar bills on you. I don't know, right? No. He tells them what he has done. It's already sealed. It's already accomplished. And we can believe it. And we can live as if it is true. Because it is. Not in the hope that it's true but in the recognition that it is true. And when we're able to rest in that place through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, producing this fruit of joy and peace within us, when we're able to rest in that, then suddenly the junk in our world doesn't have to mandate who we are or how we are in our daily lives. And so let us rest in those words today that Christ has overcome the world. Let us pray. Father, thank you. In the midst of the questions that we have and the anger that we sometimes feel or the fear that we feel or the anxiety that we feel or the horrible things that we've seen or the things that have been done to us by other people, Father, we take heart in the fact that you have overcome this world and you have overcome the enemy, and you have overcome our sin. And God, you've made a way for us to be reconciled to the Father. Father, help us today to hear those words and to breathe a sigh of relief. Help us to, to hear those words like children and to simply let them be. And to take you at your word. And to believe you are truthful. Father, I pray that we would be a people who are staking our very existence on the fact that your words are true. And even though we experience things in our lives that are rough, that are a result of the brokenness of our world, some, in some cases the result of our own sin and the sin of people around us. Father, I pray that you would help cultivate in us through your spirit a deep and abiding sense of joy. A joy in which our happiness doesn't have to be dictated by the circumstances of our lives. Father, we thank you so much for your word and for your truthfulness. Help us to take heart today, God, in your name. Amen. Stand with us.